Thank you for tuning in, Acts to Life. We're going to go ahead and get started to a topic called Ready to Receive, but what I want to call is Empty Hands, Empty Hearts. Empty Hands and Empty Heart, the Empty Hearts. Um, in 1 Kings chapter 16, um, Ahab sat, you know, started his reign on the throne. Now, he served on the throne for about 22 years, and the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30, And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Naboth. And he took the wife Jezebel the daughter of Ithbiel, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Now, this, this Baal god that Ahab and Jezebel and, and a lot of Canaanites and, and so forth served, um, he was the rain god. He was often depicted with a, a lightning bolt uh, in his hands. In verse 32, it's continuing to talk about Ahab, and he reared up an altar for Baal, in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Well, first of all, what is a grove? I did have to look that up myself because I had no idea. A grove is perhaps a wooden pillar representing or in honor of a god. So it, it could be like, say, a wooden idol. Um, of a um, um, god or, or, or a um, goddess, you know, that people would maybe serve back in this time. And Ahab, so he built a house, a temple for Baal. He made an altar for Baal, you know, for sacrifices. And then he made an idol for Baal. The Bible is full of patterns. I don't, uh, you know, obviously if you've read uh, any parts between Genesis and Revelation that there are patterns within Scripture because God oftentimes works in patterns. And one of the patterns that we see within a lot of First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles and so forth is that the nation of Israel keeps on going back and forth with their relationship with God. One minute they're serving God, loving God, God blesses them, and then they kind of turn toward idols, or they forsake God, or they get an evil king, and then therefore God is displeased, and so he brings in a enemy nation to uh, subdue and to um, uh, humble, if we can use that word, humble the nation of Israel. Then they're like, oh man, it's the Lord, we're so sorry, and they repent. God raises up a, um, a deliverer. Uh, delivers the nation of Israel from the grasp of the enemy, and then they serve God for a little while, and then they turn their back, and it's just this continual cycle. Well, 1 Kings chapter 16 lays the groundwork that that Ahab, during the reign of Ahab, I mean, he is doing anything and everything. Um, it is almost like him reading uh, um, God's wish list and doing everything opposite. I mean, anybody before him has failed to come to the level of evil as Ahab um, uh, did in those, those years. 
And one of the worst things that then an enemy occupation, because we think of an enemy occupation going, that is like the worst thing there is. Well, there's actually something worse. There's something worse than having an enemy coming in and conquering your land. And that is the corruption of leadership among God's people. And one reason is, is because one, one of these awful uh, catastrophes is the obvious attack exploiting the need for God. This enemy that's coming in with armies and uh, swords and shields, spears, bows, arrows, you know, they come in and attack your land, your home, and bust down your door. It's pretty obvious that there's a problem. It's pretty obvious that you couldn't stop them or, or you couldn't defend yourself or you're in a bad situation here. But the other, other side of it is, is that one is saying, hey, I'm one of you. Ahab was one of the children of Israel. He goes, hey, I'm one of you. But what does Ahab do? He brings in the outsider in. He invites the enemy in, Jezebel, and sits her down on the queen's throne and says, hey, everybody, just chill out. It's okay. It's fine. He builds a temple. And he says, hey, it's okay to worship here. You don't always have to go over there, you know, and, and worship God there. Here is a temple for you to worship at. He builds an altar to Baal and says, hey, it's okay to sacrifice here. You don't have to sacrifice on that altar. Here's an altar that you can sacrifice on. He builds a grove or, or a statue and says, hey, it's okay. Here's a God, here's an image, here's something you can look at and touch and, and a God that you can see. Here you go. Here, here's, here's something that you can look up to. See, this kind of uh, um, corruption, it changes the identity of God while trying to maintain the dependence upon God. They want the people of God to keep like, well, I need it, I need it, I need it. And they keep on driving into that, that need that, was, that is within man to worship something, to worship someone, but to turn and direct that worship to something other than God. It shifts the direction of worship to, to a man-made God or, a, or, or something that man put together or an idea or an image, whatever it is, and says, hey, here is God. It's just this pattern. It's temple against temple. It's altar against altar. It's God against God. And then about two verses after it talks about Ahab, 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Now, if you've studied this, this story before, if you've heard this story preached or taught before, um, you know that it, this drought, this... Um, no rain, no dew, nothing. It lasts for about three years. And I can only imagine what happens in a three-year time frame when a nation is dependent, that's dependent upon um, rain and upon agriculture, um, that it doesn't have rain. Three years, not just a month, not a few weeks, not a couple of months, no, three years. I cannot help but think that the economy is, is down. 
People are hungry. They're thirsty. Chaos is surrounding them. There's chaos in the marketplace. They've not heard a word from God in these three years because did not Elijah say, hey, you're you're not going to get any rain until you hear from me. Well, if they've not been hearing from God, they've not been, well, they're not going to be having any rain. Elijah, who said all of this, he's in hiding. He's somewhere in the backside of the wilderness living with a widow that nobody knows about. Apparently nobody knows she exists because no one apparently helped her out. Um, the prophets of God outside of Elijah, they're being hid in caves because they're going around trying to kill everybody. And this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this Jehovah. Now, where's he at during all of this? I mean, uh, I mean, we, we've heard the stories. I mean, you know, if we was putting ourselves in their shoes at this time, I mean, we've heard the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how he called a Abraham out and made, is making him a great nation, and how he helped Isaac, and he delivered Jacob, and he uh, renamed him Israel. And then, of course, um, you know, going into Egypt and then being delivered from the bondage of Egypt. And, and then, of course, the dividing of the Red Sea, and then wandering around in the wilderness, and this, that, and the other. We see uh, uh, King David, we see King Solomon, and all these great and wonderful things that God has done. But this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where is he at now? I mean, our economy's down. Our people are hungry and thirsty. There's chaos. We're not hearing anything. And then the man of God, well, who knows where he's at? I don't know. He must be going to some foreign land here and, and just soaking up the sun. I, I have no idea where he's at. And so they're left to themselves on this for about three years. I mean, they see the altars and the memorials given to this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, they see the memorials within the Jordan River. They see the memorials beside the Jordan River. They, they see the, the ruins of uh, Jericho. They see these, these memorials and altars throughout the land reminding them about a relationship that this God has had with his people. But where is he now? And while it seems like he is not anywhere to be found, evil leadership that says, hey, I'm one of you, this, this, this um, uh, uh, government is pushing a seen God, this grove, this temple, this altar. There's 850 false prophets, and then there's 400 false prophets that eat at the queen's table. You see, good is condemned and evil is rewarded. I mean, we've hear, heard the stories about Jehovah, but you see the nation of Israel is not going through just a physical drought. They're going through a spiritual drought. Water is highly valued, but this whole circumstance, all of this, is blamed on Jehovah and Elijah. So 1 Kings chapter 18, God comes to Elijah in the third year, and he says, hey, I want you to go show yourself into Ahab because I'm about to send rain. And in verse 2 of uh, chapter 18, it says, and there was a sore famine in Samaria. Well, duh. I mean, three years of famine, three years of drought, there's no rain on the earth. Yeah, I would say that it's a sore famine. I'd say that this is a pretty bad circumstance. And then um, Elijah gets up and he sees Obadiah. Obadiah is, is a uh, um, um, part of the leadership of the nation, and he's probably part of uh, Ahab's council. 
And Elijah pulls him to the side. He says, hey, Obadiah. Oh, no. Oh, no, Elijah. Is that you? Oh, like, dude, like, I could get executed by just being seen with you because don't you realize that you are the most sought after man on like planet Earth? He says this in verse 10. Um, there is no nation or kingdom whither my Lord hath not sent to seek thee. And the blame obviously is on Elijah. They're looking everywhere for him. He's the number one uh, uh, wanted list person. I mean, his picture is right there on the top, number one. And Elijah says, hey, well, I want you to let Ahab know I'm going to meet him because we've got to talk. In verse 17, and it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? Here we go. You're blamed for all the problems, all for the, the, the drought and the chaos and the chaos in the marketplace and the economy's down and, and everybody's just, you know, griping and mumbling, complaining and everything. Well, guess who's to blame? Oh, well, it's, it, there's Elijah. Oh, and Ahab saw Elijah. He says, hey, are you the one that's been troubling Israel? Oh, yeah. Well, verse 18, Elijah replies back. He says, I've not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. And so now Elijah gives some instructions. He says, okay, I want you to gather everybody within Israel and meet me at Mount Carmel. And I want you to gather all your prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. I want you to gather them all together, and, and we're going to have a showdown. Okay, all right. Well, Elijah, he, he, he meets with all the people. All the people has come up to this mountain range that we also call Mount Carmel. And he says, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people answered him not a word. I wonder why the people did not answer him a word on this. I mean, does, does that not sound like a great deal? It's like, okay, uh, you know, whichever God is true, um, then, yeah, follow him. Well, they didn't answer him a word because remember what we was just talking about, the background here, the backdrop of those three years, the drought, the, the chaos in the marketplace and stuff, but where is Jehovah? I mean, they have the memorials and the altars. They have all of these things uh, surrounding them of the blessings of God, the God, uh, God's hand upon their life, and how He delivered their forefathers through the Red Sea and from Egypt bondage, uh, bondage and, and defeated the, the giants, etc., etc. All these great things. But they like, well, where is He now? Where is this Jehovah God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? We don't know. And then what we do know is that, well, our leader, who's one of us, he uses his influence and say, hey, here's your God. Hey, here's the temple you worship at. Here's the altar that you sacrifice upon. Here's some false prophets. Here's your counselors. Here's your influencers. Here's the leaders of the social and economic uh, uh, government uh, of the day. So obviously the people didn't answer because like, uh, uh, you know, it's like, well, we know like deep down, like Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we, we know that he's the one true God, but it feels like he's abandoned us and we're stuck with what we can see, what we can feel, what we can touch, and what our leadership and influencers say is true. 
So Elijah, he caught on to that. He's like, okay, okay, here, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to have a showdown here. We're going to have two altars, and we're going to have two uh, bullocks. And all the prophets of Baal, you're going to have your turn to try to get Baal to send fire from heaven. And then I'm going to have my turn. And whichever God sends the fire, then that's the one that's going to be God. Well, the Bible says in verse 24, they said, oh, it is well spoken. Oh, now they say something. Because, see, the people want a result. You know, because this idol's not talking. Um, and then everybody's pushing this idol thing. And it's like, uh, that's not what daddy taught me. That's not what grandpa said. That's not what the priest at, at the temple has said. Uh, but then you've got these false prophets at that temple and that altar and that statue. And it's like, uh, okay, yeah, that sounds great. Whoever sends the fire from heaven is the one true God. So it, it is well spoken. Okay. So now here goes the showdown. The, pro the prophets of Baal, they all gathered around and they start doing their little whatever they did. Um, they started cutting themselves. They started yelling and screaming. And they're taking all day to do their thing, trying to get their god, Baal, to do something and to send a little, just a little spark. Just just send a little spark because, I mean, it's a, it's a drought. It doesn't take much. Um, I mean, how many times have we heard about forest fires and stuff because it, somebody uh, threw their cigarette out the window or they uh, uh, forgot to put out their campfire or something like that? I mean, it, it doesn't take much to start a forest fire. Well, all they're trying to do is just set this uh, these dry sticks with the, some uh, some meat, you know, just set it on fire. I mean, it's not going to take much. You can probably do it on your first strike of a match for crying out loud. I mean, this is this is a big deal. And so they're hollering and screaming and just just a spark, just a spark, just send us a spark. But the Bible says in verse 29, there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. At this point, all human efforts were used up. Everything that it is humanly possible has been exploited. It's been used. They've tried it. They've gone the whole nine yards. And they have come up with nothing. Then verse 30. And Elijah said unto all the people, come unto me. Come close. Come, Everybody kind of gather around here. Get, get close in. And the Bible says that they all got close. And the Bible says he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Huh. Think about that. The altar, you remember the children of Israel? I mean, they got all these memorials and altars and stuff surrounding them, but they didn't think it was important enough to keep them up, to maintain them. But Elijah repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And I am kind of curious of who built this altar. It just kind of came to me while I was talking. Who built this altar unto the Lord? What else happened here at Mount Carmel? Verse 31, and Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. I had to look that one up because I didn't know what two measures of seed was. And that is about 3.5 gallons worth of seed. So 3.5 gallons full of seed. You pour it out on the ground in a little trough. And there you go. That's how much um, uh, water this uh, trench is about to uh, hold. And he put the wood in order. He cut the bullock in pieces, laid the wood down, put the, uh, the uh, bullock on top of it. And then he said, okay, I want four barrels of water. And I want you to pour it on the burnt 
uh, sacrifice and on the wood. And after they'd done that, he says, do it a second time. So it's another four barrels. After they'd done this a second time, he says, do it a third time. So now we're 12 barrels of water, 12 stones, 12 barrels, 12 barrels of water. But the thing is, is that they're miles from water. I mean, they're fairly close to the coast, but it's still several miles from the coast. And they're on top of a mountain. And then this is during a three-year drought. Where on earth did they get the 12 barrels of water? Where did that come from? I, I, I joked about this the other day. I was like, you know, it must have been somebody's prepper's basement water supply or something. I, I don't know. It's like who in the world up in the mountains, um, you know, is bringing, you know, is ho holding that much water during a three-year drought. I mean, I thought that was impressive. And the Bible says that after the 12 barrels of water, that the water is, it, it, it is so much that it drenched and soaked everything and it filled the trench. Now, have you ever been, like, say, maybe you've been in an area, maybe you live, uh, in, like, in a desert-type area, or maybe you've uh, gone several days or several weeks without rain. Take you a bottle of water and pour it on the ground. That water will disappear within seconds. It will be gone. Why? It's because the, the, the ground is thirsty. So if, if the trench is staying full of water, then that means there was so much water, it soaked everything and soaked the ground under the altar and it filled the trench. Now, catch this. Now, verse 36. And it came to pass at the time of the evening of the sacrifice. Evening sacrifice. What is the evening sacrifice? I had to look this one up because I have read this passage over and over and over again. And I, I guess I just never saw this. I just never paid attention or I never asked what the evening sacrifice was. So I did a little research. And uh, this is coming from a blog that I got online. And, and, and I, I quote from this blog. In ancient times in Israel, every morning at about 9 a.m., the first sacrifice was laid upon the altar in both the tabernacle of Moses and later in the temple of Solomon. This was the morning sacrifice. And the people of Israel gathered together to worship every morning at this time as the sacrifice was laid upon the altar and offered to the Lord. Then again at 3 p.m., the evening sacrifice was laid upon the altar, and once again the people of Israel gathered at the tab tabernacle or temple to worship as the sacrifice was offered to the Lord. The morning and the evening sacrifice was the daily schedule of an Israelite. So the principle of this sacrifice is that it must be carried out in the temple, so no temple, no sacrifice. However, now I'm going to be skipping to Psalms 141, and we're going to go to verses 1 and 2. Lord, I cry unto thee, make haste unto me, give ear unto my voice when I cry unto thee. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting, of, lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. At this time, David was most likely running from Saul and did not have access to the tabernacle. But he was offering himself as a temple for the meeting place for God. 
He was making himself a sacrifice before God. All right, now Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46, you can reference this, and it's talking about Jesus on on the cross. Jesus, when he was put on the cross, was about 9 a.m., at the at the the morning sacrifice but he died at about the ninth hour which is 3 p.m which is the evening sacrifice so jesus cried out and died at the evening sacrifice going back to the old testament ezra chapter 9 talking about the evening sacrifice still and at the evening sacrifice i rose uh, rose up from my heaviness and having rent my garment and my mantle i fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God, and said, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for my for our iniquities are increased upon our head, and our transpass is grown up unto the heavens. Daniel chapter 9 continues another evening sacrifice. And he's this chapter here is talking about his repentance. O oh Lord, hear me, O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, hearken and do. Defer, defer not for thine own sake, O oh my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. And whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the, uh, for the holy mountain of my God, yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I have seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. I don't believe that it was a coincidence or an accident that Elijah stepped up to the altar at the evening sacrifice. I don't think that was an accident. I think Elijah had an understanding. Hey, I rebuilt the altar of God. I am trying to restore a nation back to Israel. And and, and the uh, lifestyle of an Israelite was to gather at the temple in the tabernacle at an altar and to present an evening sacrifice and a morning sacrifice unto God. He says, all right, everybody, gather in because we're about to have a sacrifice here. And so he gathers all of Israel about the time of the evening sacrifice. So we we look at his prayer, but we also have to look at the timing of his prayer. He's bringing a nation back to their roots and their relationship with God. And that's when he prays the 63-word prayer. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I, I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and thou hast turned their heart back again. And for those that know this story, the Bible clearly says that the fire of the Lord fell, consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And the people saw it. They fell upon their faces and they said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. When we are trying to build our relationship with God, or maybe you're going through a season of drought. Yeah, maybe you're, you're not thirsty, um, you know, like physically at this moment. But spiritually, you're thirsty and you are trying to build a relationship with God. Find a place of prayer with God. Rebuild an altar in your life unto Him. Because when we come to God with empty hands and empty hearts, after we have done everything we know to do, we've done everything humanly possible that we've known to do. Now, it may be, uh, 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 um, you know, like the prophets of Baal. Yeah, they was crying out to another God, but they did everything they knew to do. And then the children of Israel, they're just watching this. It's like, well, we don't know what else to do. 
because the Jehovah God, we haven't seen him, we haven't heard from him, but they are so hungry, like, okay, the God that sends the fire, that's the one that we're going to worship. And some of you, you need the fire to fall into your life. You need a touch from God today, not just a memory, not just a an altar that you've built or someone else has built uh, um, that's influenced your life somewhere back then. No, you need a fresh touch of God today. Right now, you need a touch from God. You need that experience with Him. Well, if you will come to Him with empty hands and empty hearts and say, God, I've done everything I know to do. I have emptied myself out before you. And the water, see, with Elijah, he they poured out all this water, this precious water. It was the most sought after thing outside of Elijah, of course, during this time. And when we take all that we hold valuable and we place it upon the altar and we pour ourselves out unto him and say, God, here is everything that I've got. Here is everything I can pour out. I, ha I have drenched the altar with my blood, sweat, and tears. Here is everything that I've got and I'm putting it upon the altar. And we come to him with empty hands and empty hearts. And we are ready to receive from him. Then, then God can touch our lives and help us. And there is one passage of scripture that I want to use uh, to close this out. And, and we all know this. We have quoted this. Uh, phew, no, no, don't telling how many times. But when we come to God, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, If my people, that's you and me, which are called by my name, which is, which is the name of Jesus, which was revealed in the New Testament, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I challenge you to find an altar, lay it all before him, come with empty hands and empty hearts. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.